I want you to think with me for a moment about the Apostle John, who is the human author of the book of Revelation. Now, some of you may know that John was the youngest of the 12 apostles, and he also is sometimes referred to as the beloved apostle, showing that probably in his youth and in his friendship and engagement with Jesus, that there was just this kind of unique bond or relationship between them. Well, when we think about John as kind of the youngest of the apostles, that's not where we are when we get to the book of Revelation. As far as we can tell by the book of Revelation, John is the last of the surviving apostles, and he's probably 70 or 75 years old at the writing of the book of Revelation. Now, he also tells us that he is on the Isle of Patmos, He's there, he's not a a tourist, he's there in exile for his Christian faith. And so because he's a leader of the church, the Roman Empire wants to silence him and keep him from causing trouble, and so they exile him to the island of Patmos. Now we don't know exactly what John was doing on the Isle of Patmos, because John doesn't tell us, but we have some other historical sources that tell us the island of Patmos was a place where exiles were sent, And what for the most part they did is they worked in a quarry, quarrying stone and rock for the Roman Empire. So you can imagine a 70 or 75 year old man, uh, I don't know if he's able to carry stone or if he's chiseling or what role that he's playing. He's not probably in prison and he's not a slave, but it's something like those things in the sense of he's not free to leave. And here he is at 70 or 75 years old, engaged in hard manual labor. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the question that would be running through my mind, I mean, after all, John's been an apostle for like 60 years. He's been walking faithfully with the Lord. He's served the Lord. I'm sure through all sorts of hardships that we know nothing about. If it's me and I'm on this island in this prison-like place in exile, and I'm doing hard manual labor when you would have thought that you were like, well, I'm, I'm done. The thought that would have been going through my mind, the question would have been, God, where are you? Like, is this how this ends? Like, I thought, do you not love me, Lord? I mean, I ask that question uh, on circumstances that are not nearly as tough as that. And I think, did I do something wrong? Am I here because of some mistake that I've made? And I'm guessing John at some point is asking the question, Lord, have you, have you forgotten about me? Here I am. Do you see me? And I'm going to guess that because he's human, just like we are, those questions enter his mind. But at some point, probably the spirit uh, reminds him of this very powerful personal experience that he had some 50, 60 years earlier. It's an experience where he and his brother James and his former fishing partner Peter are invited by Jesus to go up a mountain with Jesus. And there in front of John's face, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed so that his face glows like the sun and his clothes dazzle like the stars. And in this moment on that mountain, Jesus has John up there to answer this very question. God, where are you? And the answer that Jesus gives is, I'm coming to this earth that God is present in the person of Jesus. He's there in his first coming. 
and Jesus will return to the earth someday and make all things right. But in addition to that good news, John would have been there on the Mount of Transfiguration and he would have understood that Jesus was transfigured among them while he and James and Peter were gathered together or assembled together. And that would have stuck in his mind because as soon as they come down the mountain, Jesus explains to all his disciples that wherever two or three are gathered together, there I'm in your midst. And at the end, when Jesus is ready to ascend to heaven, he says, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. How? Well, John knows it's in and through the church that until Jesus returns, he is with us in the church. And so if he's asking the question, where are you, God? Have you forgotten about me? Have you abandoned me? It's no surprise that on Sunday morning, just like we're doing today, that on Sunday morning, John found two or three other believers, perhaps also exiled on the island of Patmos, maybe more, and he gathered together with them in the spirit. Now, he did it for the same reason we're doing it. We need to experience God, that all week long, we've been through suffering or difficulty or darkness. You read the news, you have something happen to you. And the question is, God, where are you? Have you abandoned this earth? Have you abandoned us? And so John did what you did, went to church. Now on that particular Sunday morning, when John's in church, again, maybe just two or three people gathered together in the name of Jesus, something happens to John that goes far beyond anything he could have asked for or imagined. It's connected to the idea that in church you experience Jesus, but this was far more than he had experienced any other time he had gathered for church. We want to pick up that story and look at what happened and see what he saw. So I'd like to invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 991. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, and we're in the first chapter. We've already heard our passage read to us with some excellent illustrations, but let's work our way through it. Verse nine, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's the story I've been telling you. John was in exile for being a Christian leader. And then verse 10, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. Now, some of you may remember, uh, probably five, four or five weeks ago, we were at the end of the book of Malachi. And we were trying to answer this question, which is the last question of the Old Testament. Where is the God of justice? And in the midst of all the injustice and difficulty in the world, we're asking the question, where is God? And Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 give a very specific answer to that question. The Lord hears the question and says, I'm coming. Where is God? I'm coming. 
and there is a particular day in which God says he will come to the earth. And that day is called, according to Malachi, the day of the Lord. And that when John goes up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, he realizes, oh, God did come. He came in the person of Jesus. And that Jesus is God with us. And that this is the day of the Lord. But then Jesus ascends. And he says, I will return again. And the book of Revelation is about that day, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns to the earth. But meanwhile, in between now and that day, John knows Jesus is present in the church. That where two or three gather together, Jesus is with us. Which is why Sunday became known as the Lord's Day. This is the day of the Lord. It's not the day of the Lord, capital D, but it's, the day, it's a day of the Lord because God is visiting his people in and, through the, in and through the church. So Sunday became known as the Lord's Day because every Sunday the church got together in honor of Jesus' resurrection with the expectation of two or three gathering together and Jesus being present. And so John, it's Sunday. He says it was the Lord's Day and he's in the spirit. This is code for he's in church. He's gathered together with other believers. The spirit is present amongst them as a church. And in the midst of this, he has an incredible experience. It says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there is John, maybe two, three, four, ten. who knows how many people in church. And he hears this loud voice behind him, like thunder. Now, what would you do if you heard a loud voice behind you? You would turn around. <laughs> Where is that coming from? Verse 12, and I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now, at first, he's only heard the voice. When he turns around, he is going to see something. And what he sees is one of the most visually arresting descriptions of anybody anywhere. And it is a description of an incredible vision. And I want to walk us through it sort of line by line because I'm hoping we're able to re-envision what John saw through the words that we have here. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now I want you to remember that. The first thing John sees are seven golden lampstands. We're going to find out later, well, we know it now, is that in verse 20, Jesus says, those seven golden lampstands, they're symbolic or they represent the seven churches. Now, why would a lampstand represent a church? Well, the symbolism is actually very old. The first lampstand that we have in the Bible comes in Exodus 25, and it's built for the tabernacle. 
And the lampstand, you may be even familiar with it today, it was described by God to Moses in very specific detail. One stem with six additional branches coming off of it so that it is a seven-branched lampstand. So powerful was this and so important was this that this became a symbol of Judaism still used today. We call it the menorah. You may, you may have seen one in one of the children's drawings of Revelation chapter one. It's the lampstand with seven branches. This was given by God to Moses so that there would be a lampstand in the tabernacle, a menorah, and what it symbolized was light. The giving of God's light. God is light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And this lampstand symbolized God's light with his people. And it was in the tabernacle because the tabernacle was the house of God. Now fast forward a little bit from the tabernacle to the time of the temple. Solomon is going to build God a more permanent location. This temple is also designed by the Holy Spirit, given specifically through instructions to Solomon's father, David. And part of those instructions were that the temple was to have 10 of these lampstands. Tabernacle had one. The temple had 10 menorah. And the idea is supposed to be, well, if the light of the tabernacle was kind of one lampstand worth, the temple is 10 times greater. And the idea is, is the tabernacle was only accessible to the children of Israel. It was a tent. It went with them wherever they went. And you could only have engagement with the tabernacle if you were an Israelite. The temple, however, while being in Israel, was meant for the nations. People were able to come and to visit. And so the light of God's presence in the temple was like 10 times greater than the light in the tabernacle, symbolically. Well, here now, when John turns around, he sees seven of these seven-branched lampstands. Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, one, ten, well, not seven, seven's less than ten. What does that mean? Well, seven is less than ten, kind of. In the book of Revelation, the number seven is the number of completion. And so while there were only seven, Those seven actually represent not just the churches of Ephesus and Sardis and Thyatira and Pergamum. Seven in Revelation represents all. And so what you have in the vision is only seven, but what they represent is all the churches in all the world throughout all time. That's a lot of lampstands. That's a lot of light. Millions of churches, and if the light of the tabernacle was one lampstand and the light of the temple was 10 lampstands, the light that these represent is the millions of churches since the coming of the Spirit throughout the world and throughout history. This is what John sees first, these seven lampstands that represents not just the church in Ephesus, but also the church in Rome, the church in Moscow, the church in Grand Rapids, All churches. Now, one more thing about the lampstand symbolism before we leave it. These are oil lamps. And so the light comes from oil that's burning. Zechariah 4 tells us that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. That as the Holy Spirit fills the church and creates the church, we are able to give light 
to the world because of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the first thing that John sees, seven golden lampstands. Then he sees Jesus. And like I told you, we don't have a lot of descriptions of Jesus. I had a picture of Jesus in my house growing up. He looked rather European. That's not correct. He wasn't European. The only description we really have of Jesus is here. And it is powerful. John says, this is what I saw. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. His first thing that he describes of what he sees is that Jesus is like a son of man, meaning he looks human. And that's because he is human. And John describes him as looking like a son of man because Jesus is a son of man. But there's more to this language than just the fact that Jesus is human. The language comes out of Daniel chapter seven where there is this great vision of the future and one like a son of man comes before the ancient of days and receives from God all authority, all power to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the ruler of the entire universe. And so when John says, I saw one who looked like the son of man, he's saying, I saw a human just like you and I are human but who had been given all authority and all power, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Keep going with me. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. These are priestly garments. Jesus is dressed as the high priest. The priest represents a mediator between God and humans, And Jesus, as a human, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is our representative to God and God's representative to us, dressed in robes that are meant to confer dignity and honor. Our high priest, robed with dignity and honor. Verse 14, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. Question. Who has white hair? Old people, right? Now we say that, it sounds like an insult, but it absolutely is not. That's more culturally, we have made a mistake in thinking that's an insult. White is the color of nobility here. It's the color of Jesus's age in the sense that he is ancient. This is not an insult. It is a compliment that Jesus is from ancient of times. That the only description we have of the ancient of days, which is God the Father, he has white hair. And that the idea here is that Jesus is not new on the scene. Jesus is from ancient times. And he will last for eternity. The white also symbolizes purity and holiness. And we have this one who has no beginning and no end, who is beautiful in his purity and his righteousness. His eyes, end of verse 14, were like blazing fire. The symbolism here is sort of a combination of Superman's heat vision and his x-ray vision. 
And the idea here is that Jesus' eyes are like fire, meaning nothing is hidden from his gaze. He sees all things. We think we can hide from him in the darkness, but he himself is light. And wherever he looks, he sees all things. And that his eyes blaze with power and discernment. He is omniscient. He sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Now, bronze is a mixture of copper and tin. And the reason why in ancient days people mixed copper and tin is because bronze was stronger than either one of them. This is a symbol of strength, and it's his feet because he stands in strength. It's a little bit like Link's iron boots from The Legend of Zelda. As he wears these boots, he is strong and steadfast. He cannot be moved. There's also the symbolism that all of his enemies, he crushes beneath his feet. That he is strong all-powerful, every strength is his. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Have you been at Lake Michigan when the wind is blowing and the waves are crashing? Have you been at the ocean when you have these giant ocean waves? The thunder, the power, the loudness of it all? Maybe you've been in Lake Michigan getting hit by those big waves. Maybe you're like me and you think, I'm gonna stand up to this. And then you get hit with it and what happens? You get driven back. That's Jesus's voice. His voice is like the crashing of waves that you think you can stand and just his voice alone knocks people to the ground. Literally, the earth shakes when he speaks. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now we're gonna come back to those. Those are a key to understanding what's going on for us today. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. This is a reference to Hebrews chapter four. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing even to the ability to divide soul from spirit and bones from marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason it comes out of his mouth is because it's referring again to his words. The words that Jesus speaks are not only powerful like a tidal wave, they are precise like a surgeon's scalpel. Can you imagine a sword that could divide your soul from your spirit? Can you imagine a scalpel that could cut so finely and so cleanly that it could separate your bones from your bone marrow? When Jesus speaks, his words cut right to our heart and he is not confused by what is going on. He is precise and exact and he divides the good from the bad perfectly every time. Amen. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. A couple of years ago, we had a solar eclipse. Do you remember that? Our family went outside to watch it because it's this great event. 
You were told very clearly, do not look at the solar eclipse without protective eyewear. Even with sunglasses on, it was still overwhelmingly bright. That's Jesus' face. It shines like the brightness of the sun, even if you're wearing protective eyewear. His presence is so powerful. It's like staring at the sun. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now remember, this is John, who spent three years walking with Jesus everywhere. This is John, who has seen the resurrected Jesus. He appeared to him in person. This is John who was on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus already transfigured. At no other point does this happen to John. But here, this is the fullness of Jesus' glory and John, the one human that you would think would go, yeah, I've seen him before. The one person that you think could stand this is absolutely, literally floored by his presence. Just simply who Jesus is. He turns around and he is knocked down involuntarily. Then he, Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, and I love this, do not be afraid. The very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Revelation are, do not be afraid. And the one part of the description that we can't say physically because it's invisible is revealed to us here. And that is Jesus' heart. The words out of his mouth are compassion and love and grace. And we can describe his hair and his eyes and his face and his robes and his feet, but no description of Jesus is complete until you have spoken of his heart. And to realize that all this power, all this authority, all that he has is for us that his kindness to us, don't be afraid. He goes on to say, I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. There is nothing before me. There is nothing after me. Jesus is the sum total of all things. I am the living one. I am the source of life. John, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am life. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. The keys, isn't that great? You think about being locked up by death? You think about being locked up by Hades, by separation from God? Jesus says, there is nothing that can hold you prisoner. I have the keys to every addiction. I have the keys to all the sin. I have the keys to death itself. Don't be afraid. It's a beautiful description. 
What does it mean for us today? Well, verses 19 and 20 are the message for us. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the key to understanding what this mystery means for us today, what this vision means for us today, are the stars that Jesus holds in his hands. Now to unpack this, work through this with me. The key are the stars and the lampstands. We've already talked about the lampstands as being the churches, not just these seven churches, but all churches everywhere. But I want you to think about what happened to John for just a moment. He hears a voice behind him and it sounds like thunder. He turns around and he's going to see an overwhelming vision. But question, what's the first thing John sees? The lampstands. Does that surprise you? What would you expect the first thing he would see would be? Jesus, right? He's the center of the vision. If you turn around and the sun is shining at you, do you think you see the lampstands or the sun? So overwhelming is this vision. And Jesus is in the center of the lampstands. He is the center of the vision. Eyes blazing, face like the sun, white hair, bronze feet. You would think the thing John would see would be Jesus. And that is what he sees, but not first. What does he see first? The lamb stands. And here's the point. There is coming a day when this Jesus will return to this earth and everybody will see him looking like this. But until that time comes, how do people see Jesus? Through the church. You see Jesus in the church. Where is John when this vision happens? In the church, what happens when two or three people are gathered together as the church? Jesus is present. During this time, Jesus is seen not like this, except through the church. The church is how Jesus is made known. Now, what's the point? The world we live in is in darkness. Does it not feel darker now than it's ever felt? It's full of darkness. What we think we might need is, well, if just this version of Jesus would return to this earth, wouldn't that fix everything? And the answer is yes, it absolutely would. But the problem is it would also end everything. It would end it before some people were able to come to faith. It would end it before a gracious, loving, heavenly father could bear to have it ended. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, Jesus' plan is, is that his light, not the fullness of the sun. I mean, after all, John's an apostle and it almost kills him. What do you think it would do to a non-Christian? 
Not the fullness of Jesus' glory. That would crush everything. Jesus' plan is my light will be available to the whole world through all the lampstands I place everywhere in every country in every city. Then my light will shine. Do you see the brilliance of his plan? But there's a danger. What's the danger? Well, switch metaphors with me slightly. Imagine that you've got this beautiful, pure, white light. What happens if you encase that white light in a dirty glass? Does it do much good? No. You know what it's like to get the windows on your house cleaned or on your car or to take your glasses off and have them cleaned? It makes all the difference, doesn't it? The danger to Jesus' plan is, what if the lampstands don't shine much light? How's this going to work? And so what he has in his hand are seven stars. Those seven stars are seven angels with seven messages, not just for those seven churches, but for all churches everywhere, including the churches of America today. And those messages are contained in Revelation 2 and 3. We have those seven stars. Jesus has given us the exact messages that he sent at this time. He is sending again today. And the purpose of those seven messages is to clean up the church. It's to wipe clean the dirt. Because we may look around America today and see darkness. I cannot remember a time when it's felt this dark. And we may be able to say, hey, look, it's the government's fault or it's society's fault or it's culture's fault or it's those people's fault over there or it's the school's fault or it's media's fault or it's politician's fault. That may all be true. And I think most of it is true. But what is the solution? The solution is not to look to institutions that create darkness and hope they somehow can create light. Where are we going to get light? From Jesus through the church. The solution for what is happening in America today is us. We are supposed to be the light in this place. We cannot shine as brightly as Jesus does, but we are a golden lampstand full of the Holy Spirit. And if we will let our light shine, we will be an outpost of light in a country that desperately needs it. And so Jesus says, I've got seven messages and they're designed to help clean you up. Because if I'm gonna be honest with you, I think you're going to hear over these next seven weeks that we cover Revelation 2 and 3, you're going to hear some pretty great commendation from the Lord for Calvary Church. We're also going to hear some things where the Lord says, I'm not so pleased about certain things. Because if I'm frank and honest with you, the church in America is not shining very brightly. And the reason why there's so much confusion and darkness, look, when you go into a dark room, 
and you turn on a light, the darkness can't overpower the light. It has to leave. The issue is not why is there so much darkness in this country. The issue is why is there not more light? Light is stronger than darkness. And Jesus says, if my church will do what I tell it to do, then my light will shine and you will once again see in the midst of the darkness light. And so over the next seven weeks, we're going to, while we're fasting and praying, we're gonna humbly submit ourselves to what Jesus wants to do, both to commend us and to clean us because we want his light to shine through us. Which is why this morning, we're not getting into any of the seven messages. We'll start next week on those. What we are doing this morning is celebrating communion together. Communion is really the perfect way to kick off this uh, next seven weeks. It's perfect because number one, our light shines through the Holy Spirit. If there is sin in our life, it will quench the Spirit's ability to shine, whether individually or corporately. And that if the glass is dirty, it needs to be cleaned. And that Jesus has said, but if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins and clean you up so that my light will shine through. So during communion, we have a chance to confess our sins and to let his light shine more brightly through us. It's also perfect because when you get that bread and you get that cup, you're gonna eat them and you're gonna drink them. And then you're gonna go back into the rest of your life and nobody is gonna be able to see the bread or the cup. It's symbolic of the fact that you've come to church and you have feasted on Jesus and that his spirit has filled you up and he is inside of you. No one can see it, but the strength and the energy you draw from the bread and from the juice symbolically lets you and I go out into the world in Jesus' strength and power so that we can be a light to the people we're around. And so communion reminds us that here at church we get filled up with Jesus' presence so that we can go out and be Jesus to the world. It's also super powerful. Because if I was gonna pick one thing that this country needs, and not just America, France, England, China, Japan, Russia, all the countries of the earth, besides righteousness, we need unity. We're being torn apart by sin, by hatred, by malice, by selfishness, by greed. And when we take communion as a church, we are reminded that we are one body because we partake of this one loaf. And that black or white, rich or poor, young or old, new Christian, been a Christian for a long time. These spiritual gifts, those spiritual gifts, whatever socioeconomic class, whatever educational background, we are one in Jesus. In Jesus, there is neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek, 
neither slave nor free. We are all one in Christ. And what this world desperately needs to see is that in Jesus, people who are not like each other can love one another. And so communion is our reminder as a church that we are one in Christ. So I'm gonna close our time in prayer and then I'm gonna give you just a few minutes of silent confession with the Lord. This is a chance to bring before the Lord anything on your heart. I hope you're participating with us in these 40 days of fasting and prayer. If you're not, it's not too late to start. Uh, Anything the Lord's brought to mind that you need to confess to him? Anything as you think about this vision of Jesus, maybe you need to hear him say to you, don't be afraid. What you're going through, what you're experiencing, take a few minutes and visualize this Jesus and let him bless you and love you through this vision and through his words. And then I'll get back up and we'll partake of the bread and the cup together. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.